everyone. Welcome to the Deck Arts Podcast. I'm excited for this episode because I'm here with Kara and we're doing another exhibition mm-hmm. podcast mm-hmm. or a review or preview. 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 It so, opens tomorrow. Yeah, so this is exciting and it's um, the satur- Saturated the Allure and Science of Color at the Cooper Hewitt Museum in New York City. So if you're in New York or in the area, you should check it out. But you worked on it, and so do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so the exhibition opens fully tomorrow, um, which is Friday, May 11th, and it's going to stay open through um, January 13th of 2019. And it's um, an exhibition, as you can tell, about color, but it's about not only just color theory, but how color translates into um visual applications of design and how artists use color and how color can even be um, created digitally. So there's various different aspects of it. Um, It's going to be located in the second floor galleries, um, 201 and 206 mainly. Um, In two weeks we're going to put in RGB wallpaper in gallery 203, which is going to be really, really cool and really interesting. I can get to that later. And also it's going to feature over 190 objects, um, books from the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Library, as well as objects from the Cooper Hewitt itself. Uh, We are not showing anything from that's not outside the Cooper Hewitt. So it's a collection-based exhibition. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, everything's from the Cooper Hewitt. And if we wanted something, we purchased it. Mm -hmm. So everything belongs to the Cooper Hewitt. Um, And it ranges from historic to contemporary times. So some of the first um, natural dyes used in ceramics to now digital printing and RGB wallpaper and things like that. So very interesting. And we're going to also utilize the Grand Staircase. Forgot to add that. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Um, So the Grand Staircase is going to be really interesting. There's about... It's a digital print of um, an algorithmic logic of a peony. So it's these tiny, tiny little icons that look like mathematical uh, circles, but then when you stand back from it, it creates the image of a huge blown-up peony, and it's 9 feet by 14 feet, and it's very, very large. So that's going to be walking up the grand staircase, and then we're using the chandelier. We got hue light bulbs and the chandelier is going to be on a rotation, and the lights are going to change from daylight to evening to fluorescent to incandescent, and so it casts different lights on the peony print, and then yeah. as well as going into the Gallery 201. So we wanted to utilize light as well as color. Wow, so you're going to be seeing all this, like, sensory... Yes. Like, experiencing yeah. the color, which yeah. is really cool. Um, so who came up with the name for the... Okay, so there was multiple different meetings um, about how to name and what to name the exhibition, which I learned as a curatorial capstone for this exhibition. Uh, We probably had six to seven hour, hour and a half long meetings where there was ten of us or more in the room and we're all throwing out different names for this exhibition and... I mean, we're coming up with different names of, like, hue and, and of course, saturated. And then we were like, oh, we should call it, like, color scheme. Or we were trying to be, like, funny, too. And saturated had always kind of been on the list. It was something we thought, but we never, it never really made it that far. But then they had a board meeting, and one of the board members was like, I like saturated. So we picked saturated because a board member suggested it. Um, and also, we thought we could give it a nice, like, subtitle. So from there, we were like, oh, the lore and science of color, because it's visual, but it's also very scientific-based. 
Yeah. So it was a joint effort. A board member suggested that he, like, saturated, and then all of us jumped on board with that. And we also put it on um, multimedia, and we put three different names, and then we took the one that um, that had the most picks, and it ended up being saturated anyway. I love the word saturated. I think it has, like, a cool little, like, <laughs> sat, like, it's... It's saturated, saturated in a verb, and it's like one word. I don't know. It's, it's cool. saturated with a lot of different material. I mean, we were kind of worried about that because we're like, does are people going to think it's like saturated fats or like you're saturated with like rain oh. and wetness mm. or is it saturated with color? So it had multiple different meanings, but I think the subtitle hits yeah, it. Yeah, it's so. perfect. I think. Yeah. Um. So the you sort of break it down into like categories. Mm-hmm that go out through the different rooms in the mm-hmm. whole exhibit. Yeah. Um, and the first one that you mentioned is Capturing Color. And I thought this one was really interesting because it's all the books, right? Yes. yeah. Okay, so this section is going to display mostly um, rare books, some color charts and color tables from different color theorists. And there are some very rare and wonderful books, like the 1704 Optics by Sir Isaac Newton, which is the book that I think all of us can understand as soon as I tell you what it's about. It's where he was um, doing experiments of passing light through a prism, and it creates a rainbow. So that's kind of how we got the Roy G. Biv, red, orange, you know. That whole uh, name came from him studying the spectrum of the rainbow, and that was coming through the prism. So that book is in there. Um, Also, um, I I won't go into all of them, but my favorite is the Wilhelm Oswald book, and it's Difarben Fiebel. And he was a chemist and color theorist in the early 20th century, and I actually studied him for my pro-seminar. And so I was so excited when he was in it. And he um, studied color based on harmony and balance. And he's, he's, his theory was order equals harmony. And he saw problems in nature. Like he started painting and started, started, started to see problems in nature and painting and trying to translate those colors and then recreating these colors and capturing these colors. So he came up with a scientific formula um, in order for printing presses to recreate the colors that he was creating and painting and he gave them the scientific formulas on how to create them and so I thought it was really interesting because that's kind of how Pantone color system mm-hmm. works today there's color formulas on the back so we can recreate colors across different mediums and that's kind of the whole point of this capturing colors like how do we capture it and then how do we reproduce it and how make it correct to what we see yeah that's really interesting so obviously it's easy to see how you guys picked the books because they were books in the collection and then mm-hmm. obviously like the basis for how we think of color today. Yep. But how did you decide? So are they open to a page? Are they? Yeah. So they're open. Um, it took us some time to figure out which page. There's so many beautiful pages. And then there's some that don't even have any color at all. It's just words oh. and verbiage <laughs> or black and white color charts. So, um, we we went through and we you know, we picked the best of the best, but every at six months we have to flip. Mm. So you, for conservation reasons, you can't leave that open for you know almost a year long. So we were able to then pick two of our our favorite and most influential pages. Like there's some text pages, but the text is so important because it does describe their theory and how it applies. So there's some that are colorful, and then there's some that are very text-heavy, but then we have labels that translate, because a lot of these are in different languages, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. I totally forgot. Like, this one's in German, right? The Dieffarben yeah. yeah. Fibel. <laughs> the Dieffarben Fibel is <laughs> German. <laughs> um, 
And so then the second topic is color optics. Mm-hmm. Um, and that one's interesting because that's the wallpaper section, right? Yes. So this one um, is really fun because this plays with your eyes. So in Gallery 206, we're going to have pieces um, such of a, as a Tiffany vase that's in iridescence. So it plays with your eyes because when you view it in different angles, it shimmers and turns different colors. Um, then we also have these really bright, crazy colored Victor Moscoso posters, and they kind of like play with this whole idea of like after image because you look at it and then if you look away and look on like a white wall or something, you kind of see an image of the poster, but in like a shadow. Yeah. So that's really interesting. And then in 201, at the very back of it, we have a 3D wallpaper called Bloom, and it was designed by Luz Elena um, in collaboration with Pratt Institute and then printed by Wallpaper Manufacturing Company 22. Um, there's going to be 3D glasses at the end of the gallery in like a little container. And so you put your blue and your red 3D glasses on, and it, it the whole wallpaper it looks like three different layers if you feel like you're immersed in it. And I've been telling people, like, stand far away and look at it and then walk closer, and you feel like you're in inside of the wallpaper. It's so cool. And then also in this section is where I was talking about the RGB wallpaper. Um, that's going to be in Gallery 203, but that's not going up for two more weeks. And that's done by this Milan-based design company called Karnofsky, and they're very famous for their RGB wallpaper. And RGB wallpaper is something where there's three images on the paper, and it's in this um, cyan, magenta, and yellow. So it's like almost CMYK, but then the light shining on it is in RGB, red, green, and blue. And depending on the light shining on it, it shows a different image. So if red's shining on it, you may see an architectural structure. If green's shining on it, you may see like a jungle and foliage. And then if blue's shining on it, you'll see like a horse and carriage. So it's really interesting. So we'll have a circulation set on a timer of hue light bulbs that will have the white light, which will show all three patterns, and you won't be able to decipher what it is. And then you'll have a red, orange, and green on rotation. So that's in two weeks. So that's not going to be up for the opening because there's a jewelry exhibition going on in the they're not going to be done with that exhibition for another two weeks. Oh, and that's the room? Yeah, that's okay. the room, yeah. Um, so maybe hold off and go in two weeks. Yeah, go in two weeks so you can get up. the full effect. <laughs> um, so, and then also in that section, I think this is so interesting, is colorblindness. Yes. Um, can you explain why you put this in and wh- sort of what it how it works in this exhibit? Okay, so we put in color blindness and camouflage into color optics, optics section, and we do have the test um, that were created for the color blindness. So you can test yourself and find out if you have color blindness or not on these images. And so it's, it's a big important part because people can't see color, and so many things are color related. Like, think about stop, stoplights. Red and green, like luckily if you know red's on top and green's on the bottom, you can go, but red and green is your, is your, um, I think it's deutertopia or deutertopia, deutertopia, I can't pronounce it, but it's the most common color blindness and a lot more men have it than women and they can't decipher reds and greens, they look more grayed out or not as, not as bright and vibrant. Um, so we thought this was really important just because there's certain things going on like that are very color oriented so we had to touch on it that there's um in fact colorblindness is going on but then it also if you're colorblind it's really funny there's a link between colorblindness and camouflage now when things are camouflaged it's hard for those of us who are not colorblind to we we are unable to see it people who are colorblind have a lot um easier way of finding things that are supposed to be camouflaged like a snake in the grass 
the, the grass is grayed out, the snake is brown. Like, it's just, it just kind of, like, they are able to see things in camouflage that those of us who do not have colorblindness cannot see. Wow. It's really it's so interesting. So we place them together, and you're going to see, like, a, cam- a book of a camouflage with a snake in it, and it's really hard to see the snake but then if you ask people who have colorblindness to come over they're like oh that's a snake then you go to the the images on the wall and there's numbers on the wall and I'm like oh yeah that's 24 and then somebody with colorblindness says I don't see anything wow yeah that's really interesting yeah that'll be an in- interesting part to go with someone who's like colorblind yeah or like you show up and you realize you're colorblind. Yeah, you don't. Because quite a few people don't know if they're colorblind. Quite a few people don't know because they may just see red and green, but it it may not be as pardon my pun here saturated looking. It it won't. It will be dull. Like they'll look at like somebody with colorblindness may look at your pants. You're wearing burgundy pants, but that your pants in honesty could be bright red, and they would see something that's duller. Yeah, interesting. So there's different levels of mm-hmm. color. And there's some people that just don't see color at all. So. so sad. I know. Well, that's like that's the part I'm like super looking yeah, for. That's yeah. right near the 3D wallpaper, so oh, it's perfect. like a nice little lead-in <laughs> to getting into like the funky effects of the 3D wallpaper. And then, so the next one is creating colors, mm-hmm. and this is um, the dyes and the synthetic dyes. Yeah. So this was how people dyed colors years and years ago, and. Um, They've been doing it for 40,000 years, over 40,000 years, and they use natural-based dyes, of course, so they would use insects, and they would use animal um, minerals, plants, um, anything that they could to, like, uh, extract color from. And we are going to have some natural dye-based textiles. There's one that is Coach Chenille, which is the um, purple dye of an insect. You had to crush and kill these poor insects, but it makes this beautiful purple color. And then it, we lead into um, in the 20th century, 19 or 19th century, synthetic dyes were created, like mauve. Mauve was an accidental color that was a chemist was using. All of a sudden, like he spilled something, mixed it together, and this beautiful mauve color was created. So this was like one of they call the first synthetic dyes. And so that we have a mauve piece in there as well. And then um, in the 20th century, of course, new materials, uh, synthetic fibers and plastics were created so color was really able to be infused into these these synthetics and also um, inkjet printing and 3D printing started to occur during the 20th century so in this section people were able to see the progression of natural dyes into synthetic into digital mm, that so, would be really interesting yeah. to see that laid out yeah. um, so then the next one is navigating color yeah. So and this it sort of has to do with, I guess, um, if you're colorblind, because it's what you were talking about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this one is interesting because this one deals with communication um, design and how color makes ob- objects functional. And we were thinking about mapping and signage. Like, think about the subway system and all the different colored lines. Like, I, I just explained to people, oh, I take the yellow line, you know, mm-hmm. or the green line. So we have different maps and different. Um, infographics in this as well as like um, how we color everyday objects I think there's a phone in there and it has different like green and red buttons and then there's um, a a tablespoon thing so each color meant a different thing so this might not be as effective uh, for people who have colorblindness but it could be effective for people who like maybe can't communicate or can't speak or Mm -hmm. you know say I use the red you know use the red spoon so yeah. the things like that. So it's like how people can function using color. 
Yeah, it's interesting because I read a book this semester. It was Donald Norman's The Design of Everyday Things. And he talks about, not in great detail about color, but he definitely talks about how, like, these everyday things, like, it's important to think about their use and their function and who's using it. So, um, that's, if you're interested in this section, you should go read his book because he, like, does it for a ton of different things, but he does. Does he talk about the Alzheimer in color? Because that's another thing that's really effective. I don't know if he goes into that, but from I, when I worked in interior design, we did um, assisted living um, facilities, and that was a huge deal of like mm-hmm. patterns and colors mm-hmm. and what was okay to put on the walls and on their furniture so they could have like depth perception. Yeah. 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 So that's part of this navigating and, and color function. So that's oh. a whole, um, we don't really touch on it that much, but I learned it through studies. And then also the senses, which is on the third floor of the Cooper Hewitt um, galleries currently going on, um, they do touch a little bit on color and Alzheimer's and how different colors of different things help them to eat better, to see better, to understand things better. So um, when we were studying this section, it was interesting to find out these different things of how color can really truly help people mm-hmm. function in their everyday lives. Yeah, you don't think about it when you're, like, well-bodied and, like, able. Yeah. Um, so the next is color and form. Um... And this is... I didn't understand the eight shades of the turquoise. Okay. All right. So this is about how color can create spatial relationships and deceive the eye. So this te- these textiles, this series, there's four different textiles, and they're very... They're big. They're probably, like, I don't know, maybe two by two or three by three. So they're very big. They're going to be on the back wall. And he is... It's um, Werner Pattons, and they're from 1969, his Decor One series. And he only uses turquoise color, and he uses it in eight different shades. Mm. So things of the different shades of turquoise, and you can it, it creates this image that looks like the patterns receding into like it's like it messes with your depth oh. perception a little bit. So his just using color and different colors can make something look like it's receding or it's getting bigger and coming towards you, yeah. or it's even moving. Like there's oh. one that has a wave, but the way he like uses the colors kind of plays with the spatial relationships and so it's kind of it's really kind of funky to look at but there's beautiful and it's I mean it's interesting that you can just take one color and the various shades can make something look like it's either coming and projecting at you or going away from you oh yeah that'll be interesting I'm excited to check that one out um and then uh color collaboration and this is like my favorite one yay this was like something that I worked really hard on um, I work in the fashion industry, as you know, so I work with a lot of um, color trend forecasting companies, and I work with Pantone color fans, so um, I'm not sure what you want to ask, so I'll let you ask me, and then I'll go into a little bit more. Yeah, can you, so I'm assu- I'm hoping everyone knows what Pantone is, but if not, you can probably just Google it, that's the best <laughs> way to get at this, but you talk about the Pantone skin tone color guide? Uh-huh. What is that? Okay, so um, for anybody who doesn't know, Pantone is like the most worldly, world, uh, worldwide renowned used color system in, like across any kind of design function. So interior, fashion, even now cosmetics. It's a way for um, companies and manufacturers to create this, the color using the same scientific formula 
from different locations. So I could be designing something in New York and I want to make it a certain pink. So I look through the Pantone color span or color book and I pick my pink and I give it my color number and it's usually like, you know, Pantone number 387. And then I'll send that to China or wherever it's going to get produced. And then they're like, oh yeah, it's Pantone 387. We have that scientific formula. It's, world, it's worldwide. So that's the way that this whole world in design kind of works is based off the scientific formula, which goes back to Oswald and how he created these scientific formulas in order to print and produce and make things in the correct color. So that was probably more than people needed to know. Um, so this past two years, maybe two years ago or this year, the Pantone came out with a skin tone color guide. And this is um, cosmetic companies are use this now. I mean, this is something that they've had problems with, those matching cosmetics to skin tones. There's been a lot of issues. There's so many different ranges of skin tones out there. How do you create a, a concealer or a cover-up in the correct color? So Pantone created a skin tone guide. So now, and it has like a little hole in each of the colors, so you can put it on top of your hand or your arm or your cheek, and you can find out what Pantone number you are. And then now companies are able to use this and create cosmetics to match back to the Pantone colors. Wow. It's very cool. Game it's, changer. It's a game changer and it's beautiful and you would not even imagine the ra- it's going to be fanned out into a circle and you can see all the ranges of skin tones. It's just so beautiful. I'm excited. Um, but then that, so you explained this to me like the first like semester of our first year is the forecasting trend book. Yes. Like Explain that because I think it's so fascinating. <laughs> okay, so another part of my job is I I design and I have to design in a year in advance. So right now it's spring 2018. I am designing spring 2019. I'm actually finishing up on spring 2019 and currently moving into fall 2019. So I work with various different trend and forecasting services that predict even further in the future. So they're working, they're showing me their ideas for 2019 in January. So I can know what is trending color-wise, what is trending print-wise, what is trending um, silhouette-wise, and one of these companies is called Claire's Paris. They've been around for 40 years. They are based in Paris. They are fabulous. They make and create their own colors. They use color inspiration. They could pick up like a shiny piece of fabric they found on the scrap on the floor and they'd be like this is the most beautiful shade of purple and I'm going to use this as my inspiration I'm going to they have chemists that dye up things to match exactly um but you use this system I mean they get inspirations for everywhere so for trends um you ever notice how every 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 company every designer is kind of following the same kind of theme every year and look and look, um, if you go to any store, you'll say, oh, well, obviously yellow's in, every store has it. So this comes from these trend in, um, trend color and forecasting companies, and they go to what's called Premier Vision, which is where, um, so there's another company that even is before the trend forecasting companies that's predicting what's going to be happening. And they look at events that are going to be going on in the year, in the coming years. So when we hear that a movie, The Great Gatsby, is coming out, and it's in production, and it won't be hitting for a year or two, but they know they're filming it. 
they're predicting that the 1920s jazz look is going to be in style, so beads and things like that. So they use art, the art world, what's going on in the art world. They use what's going on in film and fashion. Um, anything that's inspired, if there's a war going on, you notice like camouflage starts to become a big trend. They use world influences to to figure out what's going to be trending. And then they kind of tell the forecasting companies, and then the forecasting companies tell us. And nobody really wants to go off the you know off off kilter with that mm -hmm. so you all kind of like as a collective whole follow that and that's what happens with colors so every year we are given um twice a year biannually we are giving colors for fall winter and colors for spring summer and there's usually six to eight different color palettes that are given to us and then it's like us as a fashion company is then able to whittle it down to what we want to use as the best of the best what we know sells for the customer for our product mm -hmm. so this section is going to be so fun I was the one who actually set up the display cases so that was really fun oh. as part of my capstone um, and there's a section of their inspiration then there's a spring 19 color trends book in there um, and then there's the tools to make colors so all the different dyes the paintbrushes the papers and then there's also going to be an um, interactive iPad display where you can become your own color forecaster and create color palettes that's gonna be so fun <laughs> yeah. oh my gosh I'm gonna be in there all the time <laughs> that's like the best part oh that's so fun okay so then the last one you talk about is consumer choice mm -hmm. Um, and I real so one of the objects is Henry Dreyfus's Associates 1959 Signature Princess Telephone in pale pink. I want one. I know. Okay, so you remember, I think back to our pro seminar classes when we were reading that article about housewives in pink? Yeah. So think about this. This is 1950s, right? And this pale pink, and everything was pale pink, and this was for, like, they were totally targeting women. Yeah. And women wanted things in, in pale pink. So this phone was created in pale pink. Consumer choice. Women were shopping more at this time. So what did they? What were they going to buy? A pale pink phone. Heck yeah. So, I mean, this this is going to be a really fun part of the, cause of the exhibition. Because color is also used for brand identity. Mm -hmm. You know? So you have to think about how color is a very big part of a brand. Um, it's also a big selling tool, like in the 50s, pink, pink, pink. Um, and then when iMac computers started coming on, and, you know, they used to be like, what, the pale, like, whitish, grayish color. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, like, color started happening. It was, it sold more products. The color sells. So this whole exhibition, there's going to be, um, an I, there's, I think there's a, what is the, the little, not iPad, the iPods. Oh, there's yeah. going to be iPods in there. There's just, I mean, it's going to be everything that kind of, like, relates to consumer choice and trending colors so it kind of plays off nicely with the um the the um color collaboration portion yeah. of the exhibition yeah it's a good kind of goes like hand in hand okay so do you want to explain to everyone like how like how you worked on this what it was like sort of your experience um working on like an exhibit i mean that's so cool yeah so um, I did a podcast for you, I think, in September, which was working on the Fringe exhibition. So I've been so lucky. I've now worked on two exhibitions and been fully immersed in these exhibitions. And this one was part of a curatorial capstone, which was offered for our program in lieu of writing a thesis or taking the MA exam. And 
during our class pro seminar, which is a required class that we have to take our first semester, I picked the object of William Oswald's color table. And it reminded me of a Pantone fan, even though this was done in the 1930s. And so I loved it. I fell in love with it. And then during that um, selection process in the library where all the books were laid out and I saw this color table, Jennifer Brackey, the librarian who's co-curating this color exhibition, along with Susan Brown, the associate textiles curator at the Cooper Hewitt, told us that she was hoping that this book could potentially go into the exhibition if enough research was done on it. And as soon as I saw it, A, I knew I was going to be picking this as my object, and B, I knew I was going to be applying for the capstone. And I'm happy to say that one of the beautiful plates is going to be in the exhibition, so yay. yay. <laughs> um, so I did apply, and I got, I got um, offered the capstone, and immediately, like, I st they, they involved me in absolutely every part of this exhibition. I truly thought, I truly felt like I was co-curating the exhibition with them. And it was probably like a couple weeks in that I realized that I was working on my colors with Claire's Paris at this time for um, spring 18. And I was like, oh, what an interesting idea to get color forecasting into this color exhibition. So I set up a meeting between Claire's Paris and the Cooper Hewitt and I said, why don't, why don't we try to incorporate color forecasting? I think it's an important part of color and how we use color in design. And it ended up working out perfectly. Picler's Paris is now a big part of the exhibition. Um, they're one of the donors. They're part of, you know, they're, they have a big portion now in Gallery 206. So that was really, that was really fun. I felt like very accomplished at that point. I'm like, all right, I'm one month in. I, you know, I yeah. got, like, we have a whole new section of the exhibition. Um, and then... You know, I had to do other things that weren't quite as exciting, but I learned so much. I learned the wonderful world of the museum system, which is the most um, used system in the museum world. Mm -hmm. um, so I got very acquainted with that. Um, I was involved in every single meeting from deciding the name of the, the exhibition to the colors. The whole, all the walls are painted in like wild, fun, like blocks of color so that we utilize color for the walls of the exhibition as well. Um, layout, of, I was involved in that. They would send me the graphics. I would review and make my comments. They wanted to hear my comments. They wanted to hear my opinions, which was amazing as well. And then um, I worked on Careers in Color, which was an interesting and really fun project, and that was reaching out to different people in the industry who work with color specifically. Um, and uh, we we created a questionnaire of general questions um, for each person, and then we also um, created like questions that were specific to their job. Um, I can get to that. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's like so you interviewed like Crayola and Adobe, mm -hmm. Nike, Pantone, and Benjamin Moore. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, so I mean that was kind of fun because. Uh, I, would, I would do a little bit of uh, detective work because sometimes we didn't have the connections to some of these places. Like Crayola, I went on the internet and I'm scouring them on their website. I'm like, who do I email? And then I just started emailing people. And they're like, oh, I know who you could talk to. And then they would get back to me. And so it was invested. I would find people on LinkedIn, like for Nike. Um, I found the designer of, we have the um, Volt running shoes, the Nike Volt running shoes that were in the 2012 Olympics in our show. And they're like the super vibrant kind of like neon yellow green color. And so I got in touch with the designer via LinkedIn. <laughs> and he's awesome. Ben Schaefer, he's awesome. If you ever hear this, Ben Schaefer, you're awesome. And he got back to me, and he got me in touch with people to um, 
get like to worked on color and so he's like oh you should talk to Amanda and here's her email and so I'd reach out to Amanda and then she would answer my questions and it, it was just it was so much fun to hear from these people and to read their experiences and how they utilize color and what inspires them with color so we're going to post these um, once a month we're going to post a career in color um, ex, uh, questionnaire and then that helps people also realize that there are so many different jobs in the world that deal with color so you could work with color and that could be your job and how fun is that really fun so I will we get to find out so in the little paper you sent me you ask why did Crayola decide to retire the color dandelion do we get to find out you do get to find out yeah (laughs) I mean we asked more serious questions that were educational based on color but I'm like when we were coming up with questions we had to ask we had to throw in something funny too like just to make it so it's not so this is this this is this this is this we wanted to throw in one like little surprise fun question to each person and so I was like oh man why did they why did they get rid of dandelion dandelion yellow is one of my favorite colors so You'll find out in Careers in Color when they start posting them onto the Cooper Hero website. Yeah, so keep an eye out if you're curious, guys. It's a cliffhanger. Um, so that's amazing. I do also, so you were talking about working, so all the rare books would come in, and mm-hmm. you would get to um, work with those, and you talk about um, learning how to examine a book for foxing. Okay. So foxing is, I didn't know what it was either, and Jen had me in the library with her, and we're, we're looking through the books, and, and she's, I love doing any sort of conservation, that is like something I definitely want to uh, further my education and career in, so I was, I jumped on the bandwagon, and she's like, we need to look at books and do like conservation reports on these before we can display them, and she's like, okay, look for foxing, and I had the same look on my face that you do, like, what's foxing? <laughs> So foxing kind of almost looks like water stains on books. It's the dark kind of blotchy um, discoloration mm-hmm. on books. I'm not sure why they call it foxing. Yeah. She Jen didn't. She was like, I don't know. It's just called foxing. So that's what the foxing portion was. So you have to like say where it is, and then you have to be really detailed because some of these books were loaned to us from the Smithsonian in D.C. So those are sent to us. We have to make a detailed description to make sure, like, there's nothing, like, all the things that are wrong with it, and then take photos, mark it down, so then when we return the books, they can just match up and make sure there's no new damage done to it. Did you have to do it to every single page, or just the ones you were showing? Um, we were doing it just to the ones we were okay. showing. I mean, we we looked at the bindings, so I had to look at the front and back, I had to open the covers and just check the wear and tear and the damaged edge edges, but we were really only, I mean, I couldn't imagine if we had to look through 300 pages. That'd I be think. crazy. <laughs> I don't think I would like doing conservation reports that much anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's a different story. Um, that's, like, sort of all I have to ask. I mean, I feel like everyone should go see it. It sounds so fascinating. There's so many things that, uh, that are in it that we, you know... Use in our everyday lives. Yeah, and there's 190 <laughs> objects, right? Is yeah, the, yep. There's, so there's yeah. something for everyone to, like, yes. see and experience. Yes. Even if you're colorblind or not colorblind or whatever. Or if you want to know if you are colorblind. Yeah, go take the test if you think you are. Um, yeah, but thanks so much for coming on and thanks telling us about it. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, so everyone go see it. It opens um, tomorrow. Friday, yeah, May 11th. 
but maybe wait for two weeks. Yeah, maybe. Or go back. Go twice. Yeah, go you could times. go, and then in six months when the pages turn, go see it again. There you go. There's so many reasons to go multiple times. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much.